Well, have you ever failed at anything? Have you ever done something that you just knew ahead of time was a really great idea? Maybe it seemed like a fail-proof plan, but then when you actually did it, it failed miserably. And then, of course, depending upon how big of a failure it was, we usually spend the next several weeks or months, unfortunately, sometimes even years, trying to figure out what went wrong. Right? Maybe it was a business venture or maybe a new relationship. Maybe it was a ministry or, or maybe a really hard decision that you had to make and at the time you felt like you were making the right one, but it ended in failure. Maybe it was just as simple uh, as something like deciding to help someone to do something really great for someone else and it backfired and ended up in a real mess. The fact is uh, we all experience failure at times in our lives. We all fall down. We all fall short of the mark. We all uh, make decisions at times in our lives that end in failure. It's a fact of life. And those experiences are always a part of what shapes us and shapes our future, which is why as much as God loves us, he allows us to fall down. He allows us to make mistakes. And the, the truth is sometimes God allows us to fail precisely because he loves us. He allows us to fail because that is one of the ways that we grow, that we mature. And most of all, it's one of the ways that we learn to truly rely on him like never before through our failures. I am convinced that the most successful people in life are those who have either failed the most or at least those who have been willing to fail the most and still keep moving forward. In fact, the only kind of failure that truly is a complete waste is the kind we don't learn from because failure is always an opportunity to learn something valuable and like bricks in a foundation, every single failure can be a building block that our future successes are built upon. Of course, uh, uh, no one sets out to fail, right? Uh, no one wants to fail. No one looks forward to failing. But we all do. Everyone fails at times in life, and yet there is always hope. Listen to me. There's always hope for success after failure because there's always something positive, something productive, something useful to learn from every failure, which is why you will find that great successes in people's lives are always preceded by some measure of failure first, right? The children, uh, as a simple example, children don't learn to walk without falling down. Fighters don't learn how to fight without getting hit. And we will never experience great success in our lives without experiencing some amount of failure first. And so the key to making the most out of failure in your own life is first of all to recognize that you failed, which usually requires a lot of honest introspection, like sometimes painful self-reflection. But once you identify the reasons you failed, then you have a choice to make. You can either give up or you can go forward. You can decide it isn't worth it, the failure's too painful, it's too risky, it's too hard uh, to deal with and give up. Or you can do the hard work to address your own mistakes. You can learn from that failure and then move forward better than you were before. But make no mistake, that is the harder path to take. Having to admit your own failures is painful enough. 
Correcting them can be even harder, and yet the most difficult part of it all is choosing to keep moving forward, to keep working toward that goal, that calling, that relationship, that ministry, that dream, after you've tried and failed miserably, which is what our story is about today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua as the people of God suffered a catastrophic failure in the last chapter, which cost the lives of three dozen of their best fighting men and emboldened their enemies against them. And so at the end of the last chapter, we find the Israelites admitting their mistakes, then dealing with those mistakes, and now they have a choice to make, right? To try again, to keep moving forward, or to stay right where they are and settle for something far less, which is the very It is the very choice that paralyzes so many people today. Stunned by our failures, unwilling to admit or correct them, we choose to stay where we are because it feels safer and we don't have to go through the pain of failure again, which actually is absolutely true. It is much safer to stay where you are, to live your life avoiding risk, avoiding the possibility of failing again. And that is also a really great way of never accomplishing much of anything, never growing through your mistakes, never experiencing the success that you could when you're willing to learn from your mistakes and yet keep trying, you keep risking, you keep moving forward, okay? Uh, Historically, the church has been at its best when persecution was at its worst. You ever stop to think about why that is? It's because just being the church in certain parts of the world or in certain periods throughout history meant risking your very life just for following Christ. And so those who were willing to take that risk even through great failures and losses and keep going, it was those Christ followers who experienced successes which are unheard of in other parts of the world or in other periods in history. Why? Because they were willing to risk great failure and even go through great failure. But that opened up opportunities for them to experience great successes after their failure. And the truth is, I don't want to wait for intense persecution to break out before the church really becomes effective in this culture we're living in today. No, I want us, <laughs> I want us to achieve great successes for the kingdom of God now. Successes that people write about and talk about for generations to come because they were so profound in our culture. But that means being willing to learn from our past failures instead of giving up and choosing the easy way, the comfortable way, the safe way that so many people do. It means learning from our failures when we're knocked down and then getting right back up again and moving forward better than we were before. And I'm telling you, there's no better example of that in all of Scripture than in our story today. So let's turn there together to Joshua chapter 8, and we'll begin uh, right where we left off last week with verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. Okay, these two verses 
especially the very first thing that God says to Joshua in verse 1, are indispensable when it comes to understanding God's disposition toward us after we've failed miserably. Right? During the attack on Jericho, an Israelite named Achan took some of the carom, the things devoted to destruction and direct disobedience to the command of God. And then immediately following that, Joshua, without the counsel of God, decides to attack another city to the west called Ai. And the result of all of that was devastating to all of Israel because not only did about three dozen of their own die as they were being chased off by the enemy, but they found out the hard way that they could be defeated in Canaan. And as a result, verse 5 of chapter 7 says, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. This is a perfect picture of what happens when we think we have things figured out and so we act ahead of God or outside of God's will or without the counsel of God and then as a result, we experience an overwhelming failure. Nothing says it quite like verse 5 there, the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then the following verse says, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. This is full-on mourning by Joshua and the leaders of Israel as the rest of the people are in a total state of disbelief and panic. So keep all of that in mind. When you read these first two verses in chapter 8, immediately after the Israelites admit and confront and deal with their mistakes, their sin, at the end of chapter 7, because they're coming undone after this epic failure, but the moment they set things right with God, he says to them, do not fear and do not be dismayed. This is something we all need to pay very close attention to for ourselves because if you are stuck, if you are resigned to remain where you are today because of past failures in your life, you need to hear this and take it to heart. The moment, I mean the moment you admit your mistake and take responsibility for it and repent before God, which is exactly what Joshua and the people of Israel did, in that moment, God says to you, do not fear and do not be dismayed. You see, while we are still reeling from the after effects of our failure, God has moved on. He's saying, come on, it's time to go. Do not fear and do not be dismayed because I am with you. You understand we're the ones who get hung up on our mistakes. God doesn't. No, the moment you admit and repent and deal with those mistakes, God says, okay, Enough. Stop talking about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop obsessing over it. Stop using it as an excuse to stay where you are. Because yesterday is as far from you as the east is from the west. And so I'm not the one holding you back. In fact, while your heart was melting over your past failure, I was busy securing your future success. So get over it. Because I have. Let's go. Okay, if you've dealt with your mistakes, God is not wringing his hands trying to figure out what to do with your failures. He moved on from that long ago, which means it is time for you to move on as well. In the last half of verse 1, right after God tells Joshua to quit worrying about what happened yesterday, he says, see, 
I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. In other words, while you were freaking out over your failure from yesterday, I was securing your success for tomorrow. I've moved on. It's time for you to move on as well. Let's keep reading and find out what happens. Uh, God's people, what they learn from their failures. Verses 3 through 9. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from, in, from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So Joshua gathers his troops and lays out a detailed strategy, a battle plan to ambush the city by splitting up his army, by putting on this great ruse, of pretending to be beaten just as they were before, while a second force who's hiding behind the city attacks Ai uh, once all the enemy soldiers have emptied out of the citadel uh, and, and, and pursuing Joshua and the men who are in front of the city, okay? Uh, at a, the height of its power... Uh, in the early Bronze Age, Ai, or um, Etel as it is known today, uh, was a city that covered 27 acres. It had massive stone walls that were 25 feet wide and 29 feet high. Now, in Joshua's time, it wasn't quite as powerful as it once had been, but nonetheless, Ai was no pushover as Joshua and his spies thought it would be based on their first attempt to take this city. So this new strategy is much more comprehensive. It is much more creative and well thought out than the first. And yet the most enlightening part of the entire plan given to them by Joshua is what he says in verse 8, right after giving them their battle instructions. Joshua says, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. In other words, hey, fellas, in case you're wondering how this attack on AI is going to turn out different than the last one, I just got all of this directly from God himself. Okay, the first go around, Joshua acted without the counsel of God, and he paid dearly for it. But through that failure, he learned something that we all need to learn as well. Failure teaches us to rely on God's voice. Okay, the first attack on Ai, the Israelites were following Joshua's voice, which was woefully inadequate to guide them to victory. The second attack, they're following God's voice as spoken to Joshua. And as we'll see, the result couldn't have been more different. The truth is, God's people today do the very same things and we get the very same results. With every failure you go through in life, if you're honest with yourself and willing to walk uh, that difficult road of self-reflection, you will find that somewhere along the way to failure, you missed God's voice. Either you heard it and you disobeyed it, or you acted without hearing from it first. And just like Joshua and the Israelites, we can have sin in our lives and not even realize it. 
things that God wants to deal with, to correct, to repent of, to repair in our lives before we take that next step in these big decisions that we make in our careers, in our ministries, in our relationships, in our finances, in our families. But we have this great idea, which, by the way, may well be God's will for us. But not until we deal with those issues that he wants us to address first. Not until our hearts and our minds are ready to receive from him all that we need in order to take that next big step in life. But at times we don't seek the counsel of God first. We don't talk to him about it first. We just, we just charge forward without hearing from God and then we're stunned. And our hearts melt when we experience a devastating failure. And yet there's an even bigger mistake that many people make at this critical juncture when they experience a significant failure in their lives. And that, that bigger mistake often becomes a defining moment in their lives. They assume that since they failed, they assume that whatever they were after must not be God's will for them at all, so they stop moving forward. They shut down, they, they give up, they assume that God must want them to stay right where they are because whatever they tried failed. All the while, God says, no, don't you see, I want you to move forward. I want you to take that next step. I want you to pursue that next part of the journey, but you just weren't ready yet. So hear my voice now because there are things in your life that I want you to work on first. Things that need to be corrected. Areas that need to be matured. Sin that needs to be dealt with. Relationships that need to be repaired. And then the moment, the moment you heed my voice and take care of those areas in your life that need some attention, that is when you can go full speed ahead with confidence because while you are working on yourself and where you are right now, I will be preparing an absolute success for you in the very place where you failed before. What would have happened to Joshua? What would have happened to God's people if Joshua had said, no, God, I'm sorry, I can't go back up to AI. I tried that already. It failed. Now I'm staying right here. You see, that's exactly what we do when we refuse to learn from our failures, when we refuse to grow, when we refuse to become better, when we stay where we are out of fear of failing again, when all the while God wants us to move forward, to, to take those big risks, to make those big decisions. But the key is setting aside time and making the effort anytime you have a big decision before you. You take the time first to pray to pour your heart out to God, to seek wise counsel, and then listen to the voice of God. Before you do anything else, you listen and make sure you've heard from him before you take that next step. Because I'm telling you, there isn't one single person in this room who God doesn't have a strategy a plan for your life that involves you moving forward and experiencing absolute successes in your life. But you will never get there without the voice of God, without his spirit speaking to you first. Let's keep reading. Verses 10 through 17. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up. 
he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with the ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. And so they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. As soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city, and Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. And not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. And they left the city open and pursued Israel. So the plan that was spoken to Joshua by God so far is working to perfection. Joshua gets up early, probably before first light, and along with the elders, uh, who were the heads of the different clans and families, they were basically tribal leaders who had functioned as military officers in battle. They went with Joshua to lead the people right past the entrance of Ai, northward, where they would make their camp in preparation for battle. And they were making certain the people of Ai would see them passing right by the front of the city. Uh, in anticipation of an impending attack. So uh, Joshua then covertly positions a part of his army between Ai and Bethel to the west, which was behind uh, Ai, to wait an ambush, and there they would spend the night. Then, again, probably before dawn, the next morning, verse 14 says, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried, went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. Now, the Arabah um, is the great rift valley where Jericho and the Jordan River and the Dead Sea are all located. So the two armies are heading out toward the valley, where the battle will presumably take place. And honestly, it reads like a movie script, <laughs> especially uh, if you pay attention to the details because Ai was basically a satellite city of the much larger city of Bethel, just to the west. And Bethel, which is the uh, uh, modern-day town of Betine today, was an important city in biblical times. Abraham uh, offered sacrifices to God there in Genesis 12 and 13. Uh, Jacob had a dream from God there in Genesis 28, and it remained an important Canaanite city for centuries, right, long before the Israelites uh, ever arrived there. And so an attack on Ai was essentially an attack on Bethel, which was only three kilometers uh, to the west of Ai. It's like 1.8 miles, right, less than two miles. So as you would expect, uh, we learn in verse 17 that as the men of Ai were moving out of the city to engage Israel in battle, the men of Bethel were also moving out of their city to fight alongside the men of Ai. But here's where it really gets exciting. Because the men of Bethel would have to have marched right past, right through the 5,000 Israelite troops who were hiding in ambush between Ai and Bethel in order to engage the main Israelite force who were with Joshua in the Arabah. Now keep in mind, Bethel and Ai, uh, in it's what is the modern-day West Bank today, is rugged, mountainous terrain full of huge rocks and hills and ravines and depressions. And so as the troops of Bethel are marching out in the pre-dawn hours to get to the battlefield, they're marching right past 
5,000 Israelite soldiers who were hiding probably everywhere they could as the entire force from Bethel passes by unaware that they're marching their way right through 5,000 enemy troops directly into a trap. And so the main Israelite force, along with Joshua, pretend to be beaten. And they retreat toward the wilderness of the valley as they did before, which emboldens the armies of Ai and Bethel to give chase, leaving those cities emptied out, completely devoid of anyone who was capable of fighting. Right? This is like the stuff movies are made of. And although we aren't given a lot of detail about the fate of Bethel, uh, we know from Joshua uh, chapter 12 that the king of Bethel was among those who were slain by Joshua. And so it's probably safe to assume that Bethel was taken at the same time as Ai. It's just that the story here focuses on Ai because that is where Joshua sent the Israelites into defeat in the previous chapter. So let's keep reading and we'll find out what happens next. 18 through 23. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people fled to the wilderness, who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they, uh, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. So the plan unfolds precisely as God designed it to. As Joshua's force is retreating, he signals the ambush forces to take the city by raising his javelin when the Lord instructs him at the time. By the way, the word javelin in the ancient Hebrew is the word kidon. It's the same word used in 1 Samuel 17 to describe Goliath's bronze javelin, which actually is more of a sword, a short sword than uh, what we think of as a javelin today. It was a, like a scimitar, a short uh, curved sword that was common in the second millennium BC. So Joshua holds it up in the air to signal the forces waiting in ambush to attack the citadel at Ai. And so they get up and enter the city and set it on fire, which sends the enemy troops into complete confusion. And so seizing on the moment, all at once, the ambush forces move out of Ai to attack the enemy from the city while Joshua and the main force of the Israelites turn back to attack the enemy from the wilderness. And just like that, the soldiers of Ai and Bethel find themselves in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. In other words, they are completely surrounded by Israelites. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. This is a stunning turn of events from that first attack on Ai to this one. The stark contrast between Joshua's plan on their first attempt and God's plan on this attempt could not be more pronounced than it is here as Israel goes from total failure to total success and in the process learns a lesson 
they wouldn't soon forget. Failure teaches us to rely on God's plan. Okay, there were numerous points throughout this entire battle sequence and the events leading up to it where the Israelites could have very easily abandoned the plan. First of all, uh, they marched right past the front of the city just to let the enemy know they were there. They could have very easily provoked an attack before the Israelites were prepared. Then 5,000 of Joshua's men had to secretly move into hostile territory and hide directly between two enemy cities overnight without being detected, which would mean no fires, no movement, no talking, no nothing for a long time. Then those same troops had to muster the nerve to remain hidden and silent and still as the entire army of Bethel marched right through their position, right past them on their way to meet up with the army of Ai. Then the troops with Joshua had to rely on the ambush force to successfully destroy the city very quickly before Joshua's forces ran out of places to run away from the enemy who was chasing them the whole time. And then after all of that, they still had to turn and face and fight an enemy who had very recently defeated them soundly. Yet every single part of it worked because they had learned to trust in God's plan. Now think about that. God's plan on the surface would seem far riskier than Joshua's plan, right? Joshua sent an invading force the first time by surprise to attack Ai head on, while God's plan has them marching around past the front gates of the city, hiding out, running away, and tricking the enemy into uh, an ambush. You know what? God never said that his plans for our lives were risk-free, did he? He never said he, we wouldn't face danger. He never said it would always make sense to us. He never said it would be easy. He never said we wouldn't fail at times along the way. But you know what is infinitely more meaningful than anything he didn't say? It's what he did say. He said, do not fear and do not be dismayed. He said, fear not for I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, Isaiah 41.10. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28.20. You understand failure isn't the end of anything. If you're willing to follow God's plan, failure is just the beginning for you. King Solomon wrote, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19.21. There is, I'll tell you, there's nothing better than discovering God's plans for your life. I can, I can testify to that firsthand. And yet nothing will open your heart and mind to the possibilities of God's plan for your life more than when your own plans for your life fail miserably. You see, because sometimes we get in our own way. And so God just allows that to play out in our lives until our plans fail, not to bring us to an end, but to bring us to a new beginning, one where we've learned to rely on his plans, no matter the risk, no matter the danger, no matter the unknowns, because relying on his plan for your life is the only pathway to true success. And nevertheless, a lot of people believe their past failures have led them to an end from which they can never Recover, which is what Joshua must have thought. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said to him, do not fear and do not be dismayed. 
which he followed up with, see, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. All right, success belonged to Joshua before he ever took one step in the direction of Ai once he learned to rely on God's plan instead of his own. Let's keep reading. Verses 24 through 29. When Israel has finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel turned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell, fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, uh, Israel, took as their plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins. By the way, Ai in the Hebrew uh, translated directly literally means heap of ruins. Uh, how you like to live in a city with that name? Uh, so Joshua burned Ai, made it forever a heap of ruins uh, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. All right, so the people of Ai were considered carom. Uh, things to be devoted to destruction. We talked about that at length last week, so I'm not going to go back through all of it today other than to say that the gruesome nature of the wholesale slaughter of an entire city, men, women, and children, underscores the disposition of a holy God toward blatant rebellion and sin, which these cities were certainly guilty of. And lest we think it unfair, because this was toward those who were non-Jews only, Achan, one of their own, a Hebrew, and his entire family met the exact same fate for his own blatant rebellion and sin in the last chapter. In fact, his body was treated exactly the same as the king of Ai's body was treated here, thrown down and covered up with a heap of stones. And of course, we need look no further than Jesus Christ himself and the death that he suffered to satisfy the wrath of a holy God toward blatant rebellion and sin. Okay, we must understand that God is holy. He is just and he's consistent in his treatment of rebellion and sin. The difference, of course, for us is that Jesus Christ took the wrath for our own sin upon himself. He paid that penalty so that we wouldn't have to. But God is still holy. He's still just. He still hates sin, which means our treatment of sin should be as ruthless as Joshua's treatment of Ai. We put it to death without mercy. The Apostle Paul said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit you put to death, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8, 13. You see, sin is as serious to God now as it ever was. And it should be to us as well. And yet because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, we can still have success even after our greatest failures. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 30 to the end of the chapter. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered it on, on burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So Joshua goes up to Mount Ebal, which is just north of Shechem, to renew the covenant with God by building an altar and offering sacrifices there as the people stood on either side of the Ark of the Covenant between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which sounds like a long way apart, but actually... Uh, the bases of those two mountains are only about 500 yards uh, between them. So you can imagine two and a half million Jews there in the valley between the two mountains with the ark as Joshua follows the written law of Moses down to the last detail as laid out for them in Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 13. Okay, they build an altar of unhewn or uncut stones according to verses 5 through 7 in Deuteronomy 27. Then Joshua writes the law on the stones according to verse 8. And then they offer burnt offerings according to verses 6 and 7. And then in verses 34 and 35 of our text here in Joshua, it says that he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites are reaffirming the covenant and their commitment to the word of God, which we've seen all the way through this chapter because failure teaches us to rely on God's word. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, you need to know something about these verses, uh, 30 through 35. Uh, most English translations of the Bible that we have today, including the ESV that we use here, use the Masoretic text as the basis for uh, the Old Testament. If you look in the front of your Bible in the first few pages, it will say uh, textual basis or something like that. And you'll probably find that your Old Testament and your Bible is based on the Masoretic text. Most of them are. Uh, that's named after a group of Levitical scholars and scribes called the Masoretes who compiled Old Testament manuscripts between the 7th and 10th centuries AD. But then between 1946 and 1956, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Qumran were discovered by Bedouin shepherds, actually some teenagers, and then later along with archaeologists in the Qumran caves near the Dead Sea. And it included in those scrolls, we have manuscripts from every book of the Old Testament minus the book of Esther. And so here's where it gets interesting. The Dead Sea Scrolls are about a thousand years older in the Masoretic text, meaning they were written down a thousand years closer to the time of these events in Joshua than the Masoretic texts were, which makes any uh, differences that may occur between the two different texts worth paying attention to. Now, <clears throat> I do want to be very clear about something. 
because there's been a lot made about the differences between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text over the years by people who would love nothing more than to discredit the historical accuracy of the Bible when in reality over 95% of these two different texts are basically identical which is astounding when you consider the fact that there's a thousand years between them being written down. Uh, Hebrew scholar Milo Burroughs said it this way, it is a matter of wonder that through something like 1,000 years the text underwent so little alteration. As I said in my first article on the scroll, talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, herein lies its chief importance, supporting the fidelity of the Masoretic tradition. Likewise, uh, Gleason Archer, he's passed away now, one of the most respected Old Testament scholars wrote, even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1947 were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, AD 980, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. And so, despite the claims of some biblical detractors, the two texts basically agree on almost all points, okay? With all of that said, however, there are some noteworthy differences including one that involves these last six verses in Joshua chapter 8 that we just read because the Dead Sea Scrolls place these verses just before Joshua chapter 5 verse 2 instead of here at the end of chapter 8, which is significant, right? So the, the placement of these verses in the Qumran version, the Dead Sea Scrolls, is correct. That means Joshua and the Israelites renewed the covenant and made these same sacrifices that we just read about, that they did this the same day they crossed over the Jordan River, just before circumcising the men of Israel and then celebrating the Passover, which actually makes a whole lot more sense if you go back to Deuteronomy 27, where Moses tells them to do everything that they're now doing at Mount Ebal because he tells them to do it on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, Deuteronomy 27.2. You understand it, it corrects what is probably a chronological mistake in the Masoretic text. And by the way, it doesn't change the doctrine of the book of Joshua, and in fact, it doesn't change the message of this sermon, which I'll show you in a moment, but I wanted to, I wanted to cover that with you today because, number one, it makes much better sense out of the text when reading it with Deuteronomy 27 in mind, which we should always do because the two are, uh, are inextricably linked. And it also clears up the question that many uh, would ask before we had the Dead Sea Scrolls, as to this contradiction in Scripture. So it is a significant find. But again, it doesn't change the point that through their failure, the Israelites were learning to rely on God's Word because all through this second battle of Ai, we find Joshua doing just that, relying on God's Word every step of the way. We, we know that they pulled off an elaborate ambush, and although... Uh, using military ambush in battle was certainly not unheard of at the time. We have uh, 13th century B.C. Egyptian writings and 10th century B.C. Assyrian writings that describe ambush strategies similar to the one used by Joshua here. But we know this wasn't just Joshua 
being a clever military leader because verse 8 describes the plan as the plan is described. Joshua says to the people in verse 8, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. Likewise, hanging uh, enemy rulers on trees, which actually meant impaling them uh, with a wooden pole. I'll spare you the details. Uh, but that's what Joshua did here with the king of Ai. We know that was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern warfare. right? The 7th and 8th century B.C., Assyrian king Sennacherib wrote about how he executed the rulers of Ekron and then he said, I hung their corpses on poles around the city. The difference though with Joshua is that he was careful to recognize God's word even in the matters concerning dead bodies, even after the heat of battle. Verse 29 says, at sunset Joshua commanded and they took his body down from the tree, threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. So Joshua had the body taken down before nightfall according to the word of the Lord in Deuteronomy 21, according to God's written law, which commanded that any dead body hung on a tree must be taken down and buried before dark on the same day it was hung on the tree. These are all details, and we could go on and on here, that show Joshua's renewed attention to the word of God in his every decision because he had just recently experienced the alternative. All right, when, when we veer away from God's word, even when it appears that our success is assured, when we depart from the word of God and begin making life decisions that are contrary to his word, we set ourselves on a collision course with failure. Okay, there is no replacement for the word of God as a guide for our lives. There's nothing else in this world that we can rely upon to lead us to success like the word of God. Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it, Luke eleven twenty eight. He said, the word of God is what we live our lives by, Matthew 4, 4. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word of God sustains us, it guides us, it protects us. Again, Solomon said, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, Proverbs 35. The fact is, the word of God is absolutely trustworthy so that when the battles of life come, and we all know they will, we can unequivocally rely upon his word to guide us through those difficult times. Or, or we can improvise, like Joshua did the first time around. And you'll find out quickly, just like he did, the only thing that awaits us outside of God's word in this life is failure, dysfunction, and ultimately defeat. King David wrote, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119, 105. In other words, every step that I take in this life is guided by your word. And yet we know David even had great failure in his life, right, as he got outside of God's will, God's word, God's counsel for his life. The fact is, guys, we all fail at times in our lives. Every single one of us falls down. We all fall short of the mark. We all make decisions at times that end in failure, and it is in those most difficult moments that we have a choice. We can choose what our future is going to look like, or we can shut down, give up, walk away, because we failed? Or will we renew our focus? Will we renew our commitment 
to rely on God's voice once again, to rely on God's plan once again, to rely on God's word more than ever before because I'm telling you those are life-shaping decisions. Those are the decisions that shape our future and determine our path going forward. You see, by God's grace and because of his mercy, you get to choose. You can either allow failure to define you or you can allow failure to refine you. But make no mistake, that choice is yours. Yours and yours alone. No one can make that choice for you. When facing that very same decision, Joshua chose to renew his commitment to God. And of course, the results speak for themselves. So ask yourself, especially if you're wrestling with failure in your life today, ask yourself, am I really going to allow this failure to define me? Or am I willing to swallow my pride, admit my mistake, make things right, and allow that failure to make me better, stronger, wiser, more successful tomorrow than I am today? Because honestly, you can have success after failure as long as you're willing to allow it to work in your life as God intended it to, which is precisely why he allows us to fail in the first place. Because he loves us and he wants us to learn to rely on him in everything, even in our failures. Let's pray.